remember I was uh, dean of a graduate school at Maryland when the Cold War collapsed. And people, and I had been working in the national security field for about 20 years at that time. And people said to me, knock, you're finished. The Soviet Union's done, you're done. You're out of business, go fly kites, grow tulips, it's over. No more bombs and bullets, it's all about economic development and trade and commerce, entertainment, all the great things of life. And I said, possibly. Let's wait a while. Let's just see how things shake out. And then shortly after, we had Somalia and Bosnia and the Balkans generally and several terrorist attacks in the US and then, of course, 9-11 and now Iraq and many other things. If you looked at the uh, tableau of national security issues facing the US, it's very large and very daunting. In fact, I would say, just as a neutral observer, that except for the uh, existential threat of a Soviet nuclear missile attack on the United States, which was always overhanging us during the Cold War, that no president, certainly in our lifetime, and maybe no president in the modern, in the, from the 20th and 21st century, has faced as daunting an agenda as President Bush does. Now, maybe he's partly the creator of this agenda. That's a separate matter. But there's no doubt it's a daunting agenda. There are many issues that you may want to discuss, and I'd be happy to discuss them with you, that I'm not going to discuss, because as important as they are, in my judgment, they're not in the top five of what is being really focused on in Washington these days. I'm not going to talk about the genocide in Darfur, which is a huge, ca catastrophic problem. I'm not going to talk about the enormously vexing immigration problem in this country, primarily coming from south of the border in Mexico. I'm not going to talk about the drug problem, which is festering and continues to go unabated. I'm not going to talk about global warming issues, which are having all kinds of potential effects on our economy and on our health. I'm not going to talk about uh, important new free trade agreements in South America and in East Asia and in the Middle East. These are all top priority issues, but they're not in the top five. Most of the time of the leadership of this government and of the key congressional committees and of the key senators and congressmen is on in the national security area. Number one, the war in Iraq. Number two, the kind of forgotten war in Afghanistan, and as part of that, what we call the global war on terrorism. Number three, the related issues of oil politics, the Israeli-Palestinian and Israeli-Hezbollah issues, and the broader like Middle East peace process. Uh, Number four, a, a kind of broader sense of how does the United States deal, and how does the international community deal with the Muslim world? and try and address the grievances of the Muslim world that hopefully could dampen down some of these terrorist inclinations. And five, also pervasive, but with a specific uh, case, the spread of nuclear weapons technology and nuclear weapons, and the particular case of North Korea. That's an enormously challenging list. I'm going to give you a few historical points that are gonna range from the sixth century to last night. So I've, I've narrowed it down a little bit. <laughs> sixth century to last night. I just, you know, I want to spread it out. Some of you care more about the sixth century. Others of you care about last night. So I want to please everybody. So let me begin with a little bit on the sixth century. Uh, I was a young assistant professor at that time. <laughs> and I remember clearly that Muhammad had really, uh, uh, was the key driver in founding the Islamic faith. And then in the middle of the sixth century, he died. 
Like in a lot of other organizations you may be familiar with, there was no clear plan of succession. This is always a problem. And in some sense, the whole world is living with this problem to this, to this morning. There developed two strains of thought, two schools of thought about this, among the growing believers of the Islamic faith. One was that Muhammad had been surrounded by a small coterie of wise people, disciples, Peter and Paul type people. And a lot of people said, you know, they know what's going on. They're the in-group. They're like the Politburo. They'll figure it out, and they'll pick the successor. There was another group who looked at it more in theological terms and said that, no, Muhammad is essentially a descendant of God. And therefore, the only one who can replace him is part of his family lineage. It can't be somebody, some advisor. It's got to be a descendant family member. And this was the beginning of what has become an enormous split between the Sunni and the Shia, which involves many other issues, but this was the initial core issue. What is the essential essence of Islam and who was to lead Islam? That was disputed starting in, 15, in 565, 565, and it's disputed this morning. Unresolved. Unresolved. Over the centuries, the Sunni have dominated the Islamic world. Today, you know, when I used to be a missile aerodynamicist, I used to carry things out to the fifth decimal point, and if that was wrong, I was in big trouble. The missile would go like this instead of like that. Now I'm in public policy, it's all back of the envelope calculations. So the back of the envelope calculation is there are roughly six and a half billion people on this planet. Of the six and a half billion, there are about 1.2 billion Muslims. So it's about one in, one in five, a little less than one in five. It's very large. Of the 1.2 billion Muslims, back of the envelope, about 300 million are Shia. And the balance, the vast majority, are Sunni. The Shia tend to be concentrated in a few states. They are spread all around the world, but they only have a majority in a few states. The state with the largest Shia majority is Iran, where out of a population of about 70 or more million, 80% are Shia. This is the home of Shia Islam. And the great center of learning, Qum, which is actually where Nasrallah of Hezbollah studied, remains in some ways one of the holiest centers of Islam and certainly the holiest center of Shia uh, Islam. The a second huge population center for Shia is Iraq, which has about 50% of the 26 million Shia. There are only three other countries in the world at the moment that claim Shia majorities. They're small states. They're Yemen, there's uh, the United Bahrain in the Gulf, and there's Azerbaijan in the, in the former Soviet empire, the Caucasus. And now, because of demographic shifts, Lebanon is about to become Shia dominant. For, the, for years and years, I don't know if there are any Lebanese here, people of Lebanese extraction, but for years and years, a mix of Sunni, Sunni Muslims and Christians dominated uh, Lebanon and also dominated and also suppressed the Shia. But now the, the Shia are about to be more than 50% of Lebanon. And of course, Hezbollah is hugely significant in that development. 
So I go through this demographics because you have to, if we're going to really get educated on the whole Islamic issue, you have to understand some of the basics. We are very poor at this. We're way, way behind. We have very limited expertise at our universities, at our think tanks, in the government, in the intelligence community. We don't have enough Arabic speakers and Farsi speakers and Pushtun speakers. They're all Urdu speakers and Hindi speakers. Remember that Islam of the 1.2 billion people Another thing that we sometimes get confused about has many different uh, flavors, if you might. Right? There are Arab Muslims. Arab Muslims. So that's largely the Middle East. How do you know if you're an Arab? If Arabic is your primary language, you're an Arab. That's 300 million people in what we used to call, what we call the Middle East. Iran is not Arab. Iran is Persian. Their primary language is Farsi. It's not Arabic. And there's been a long history of hostility between the Persians and the Arabs, even though they're both Muslim. Of course, there's also most of the Arabs are Sunni, and the Persians are uh, Shia. What are the, what's the most populous Muslim country in the world? Indonesia. It's not Arab. It's not Persian. It's East Asian, and it's Muslim. Nigeria has a huge Muslim population. Sudan has a growing Muslim population. There are 7 million Muslims in the United States. 10% of the French population is Muslim. There are a couple million Muslims in Britain, in Germany. Turkey is a secular Islamic state. It's complex to paint with a broad brush and a single brush is a huge mistake. And we have to guard against that as we try to get on the learning curve of understanding this. Now, how, do all, how does all this relate to the security issues? Well, first, let's talk with it about the top issue, Iraq. Um, I have a peculiar background which makes me largely untrustworthy to all audiences. <laughs> and that is, I was a political appointee in the Clinton administration, confirmed by the Senate, took an oath of office in front of a committee headed by Jesse Helms and Ted Kennedy, both on the same committee. I had to say something that convinced both of them. This was not easy to do. <laughs> I was up nights trying to figure out how to do that. Um, Worked for three years on arms control and missile defense. I was involved in negotiations with the Russians and the Chinese. But later, I was asked to be on a committee and then chaired panels of a committee under the current president. Uh, not on Iraq, but in the area of preventing weapons of mass destruction coming into this country and being used against the United States. Uh, so Clinton political appointee, Bush advisor, no one trusts me. So, so I understand. I understand. I, I look in the mirror of myself every morning and go, who is So I'm going to give you the, this, my, my straight poop of what I think is the straight poop. I think the Bush team, and the Bush team, you have to understand, has an axis of enormous strength, although it may be waning now, but for five years or more, the strength was Cheney Rumsfeld. Cheney Rumsfeld is the strength of the Bush axis. They're the idea people, they're the forceful policy people. Everyone else is trying to modify things at the margin of what Cheney and Rumsfeld want to do. Cheney and Rumsfeld, you perhaps know, are very close. Rumsfeld was a White House uh, chief of staff under Ford, and he recruited Cheney, who was a young uh, intern. That's such a good term, is it? <laughs> Cheney's a native of Casper, Wyoming. And I've actually visited his high school because my oldest son married a Casper girl. And he was uh, actually, he dropped out of Yale 
was fooling around, smart guy, but didn't pay attention, dropped, was thrown out of Yale, and uh, a later graduate from Wyoming, and he was actually all but dissertation at Wisconsin when he got this White House fellowship. He went to work for Rumsfeld, who was a Princeton wrestler, smart guy, had been a congressman from Illinois, and they really bonded. They have same ideological and personal interests and personal habits. Rumsfeld is about uh, nine years older than uh, Cheney. And then later, when Rumsfeld became Secretary of Defense under uh, Ford, he urged that Ford appoint Cheney as White House Chief of Staff. And at the age of 34, Cheney was White House Chief of Staff under Ford. So they go back then, they go back to the 70s, now it's 30 years later. They're, they're, they're like this. Only now, because Cheney is the superior as vice president to, to Rumsfeld. Their view was that, especially after 9-11, it was important to go into Iraq for several reasons. Not necessarily all the reasons that the whole administration advertised. They really thought there were weapons of mass destruction in Iraq, chemical and biological. I don't believe that there was any evidence at any time, and I have clearances and I followed some of this. There was no evidence that they had nuclear weapons. Why the vice president articulated that there were nuclear weapons there, I can't say. I think it was to develop support. So I think that's a hype that's not warranted. But I do think they believed, and many believed, and I believe, that there were chemical and biological weapons in Iraq, and that you could not guarantee that Saddam Hussein, even though he had animosity toward bin Laden, because Hussein was a Sunni secular leader, and obviously Al-Qaeda is theologically driven by Sunni uh, militantism and, and Wahhabism, which comes from Saudi Arabia, that there was no guarantee that Hussein wouldn't pass off, or some of his people wouldn't pass off the weapons of mass destruction to Al-Qaeda, and of course Al-Qaeda would use it in New York or whatever. That was a key uh, objective. I think they definitely wanted to destroy Saddam Hussein because it was a leftover agenda of Daddy Bush. There's no doubt about that. And that gets into psychobabble and family history and who flushed what toilet when you're three years old and, and, and that and Maureen Dowd columns and all that stuff, which is important. I don't want to, I don't want to in any way uh, minimize it. There's no doubt that Bush, there are issues between father and son there. Uh, I'm not qualified to discuss it psychiatrically, but uh, I think clearly Bush, want, Bush, the current, wanted to do things that the father couldn't do. And the two top things were get reelected and topple Saddam Hussein, both of which he's accomplished. Now, there's a lot of other things he hasn't accomplished, but he has accomplished that. I think there were issues that if you could demonstrate that the, uh, some sort of pluralistic moderate state could be established in the Arab Middle East, namely Iraq, the model would spread. It wouldn't have to spread with American troops in 22 countries, but if there were, there were 22 Arab countries, none of them democracies. And that the way to dampen down terrorism, the way, the way to make uh, peace in the region, the way to secure Israel's security, and actually then force the Israelis out of the territories, was to bring democracy to the region. Varying people had different degrees of enthusiasm about this. I'm not sure how enthusiastic either Cheney or Rumsfeld were about this, because they're more strategic in their thinking. They're not, they may be wrong, but they think strategically, rather than uh, sort of almost uh, religiously. And there were some other reasons too. And of course, security of the oil and making sure that oil didn't get in the wrong hands was a central US national security issue. Remember, if you add up Iraq, Iran, and Saudi Arabia, you have roughly 60% of the world's proven oil reserves. If one day the leaders of those three countries said, you know what, we decided we're going to hold off selling you oil for a while, there would be at a minimum a severe, immediate 
global recession, and it could, it could lead to a depression almost overnight. You know, you have your Schwab account, your IRAs, you know, you wouldn't have to look at them anymore. <laughs> say, uh, next window, please. Nothing. So it's really serious. And they say, oh, it's only oil. Yeah. Well, oil is uh, central to our economy. Maybe tomorrow we'll get renewables, maybe tomorrow we'll get nuclear, maybe tomorrow we'll get all kinds of things. We don't have it tomorrow. We may have it tomorrow, we don't have it today. So clearly oil was an important fact. You add all that up, they went into Iraq, and they got it wrong. He didn't have weapons of mass destruction, still unknown why, put that aside. And the whole ability to develop a moderate state is failing, I think. You know, maybe it'll change, but after three and a half years of data, it's, you know, it reminds me a little bit when I was out here, I was told to buy Webvan stock. I don't know if you know Webvan. It's going to do, remember that? They were going to deliver groceries? Why would I mention that? I said, well, I bought Webvan, it was here. You know, it was like a rack was here. And then later, Webvan was there. I said, well, it's just cost correction needed. <laughs> then Webvan was there. Then Webvan was there. Finally, I don't have to worry about Webvan, because one day I got a letter that said, you don't have to worry about Webvan, because there is no Webvan. <laughs> Red van, there's no stock, there's nothing. Don't worry about it. So, you know, at what point do you sell? The big debate in Washington is when do we sell on Iraq? When do we sell on Iraq? And Bush and Rumsfeld and Cheney have been resistant to sell on Iraq because it's admission of failure. But even more than that, they feel that it would lead to an Iraqi state that for a while would be completely chaotic, but ultimately would become a new Afghanistan, which would be a base of operations for new terrorist attacks against the United States. Now, skipping ahead from 562, time of Muhammad's death, to last night. Last night, uh, Senator Warner of Virginia spoke at a press conference. You may have missed it. He was on C-SPAN. Senator Warner is very important. He chairs the Armed Services Committee, and he's the most senior military-related figure in the Senate and the closest figure to the Bush administration. He gave the most critical, resounding, alarmist assessment of Iraq that anyone that I'm aware of has stated publicly by people on the Bush side. Of course, the Democrats and Murtha and others have been saying a long time it's a mistake, get out and this and that. But no one on the kind of, in the ruling clique has said that. Warner basically said last night that the Iraqi government has till the end of the calendar year, 90 days. And that if the situation is the way it is in Christmas time, the way it was when he just came back, he just came back from just two days in Iraq, he said, we will have to think of fundamental redirections. Now that's a buzzword perhaps for a commitment to withdraw. Because we haven't been able to cope with two concomitant issues. The emergence of intense sectarian violence between Sunni and Shia groups, the Sunni minority that it fears that they will be oppressed if the Shias take over completely and will retaliate for all the suppression of the Shias under Hussein. And the insurgency of outsiders coming in from Iran, from Saudi Arabia, from Yemen, from Pakistan, from Britain, from Germany, from America, from outside the region to fight the Americans largely in the name of Al-Qaeda. Now Al-Qaeda has a different view than a lot of the other groups. The Al-Qaeda view is that they never actually quite existed what they're now saying they need to resurrect, but they claim that there was roughly an Islamic empire called a caliphate from roughly Spain and France in the West 
to Indonesia, the Philippines, Malaysia in the east, cutting across the Middle East, what we call the Persian Gulf, South Asia. Remember, India has 170 million Muslims, and India is a Hindu country. India has more Muslims than Pakistan. India's Muslim minority is bigger than Pakistan. They're not Arab, they're not Persian. They're Sunni, all the way to Southeast Asia. The Bin Laden view is that the whole concept of the nation state, America, Mexico, Canada, is a product of the West. And it's illegitimate. There shouldn't be borders and sovereignty and what you do here is different from what you do in Mexico City. No, there should be one rule of law. His interpretation of Islam would be the rule of law. From Barcelona to Jakarta. And that would, be the, uh, that would be what I call the immediate goal. The immediate goal is to kick the Americans and the West out of the Middle East and create this caliphate. And then he claims, and Zawahiri, his intellectual advisor and an aide and medical doctor and many other things, claims that that would be the stepping stone to the Islamicization of the entire world in which there would basically be two kinds of people. There would be believers of Islam who would live in the caliphate, and there would be dead people. <laughs> so that would be your choice. You could sign up either way. It's your choice. Free, freedom of choice. So that's the vision. Get the Americans out, develop the caliphate, Islamicize the world. Many Muslims, many militant Muslims, don't share that view. They have a different view. I think most of the Shia Persian Iranians, and Ahmadijan as the head of that, the, the secular head, as well as the leaders, the mullahs, the Khamenei who replaced Khomeini, their view is the resurgence of Shia Islam and of Persia and Iran becoming the grand regional power. It's not about the caliphate. They know they're never going to convert 900 million Sunni Muslims to their point of view. They've got a different view. The Hamas, Sunni militants who oppose the existence of the State of Israel in the Palestinian territories, they want, a, they're Palestinian nationalists, they're religious, they want a Palestinian state. They're not interested in the caliphate, right? Maybe, you know, in 2550, but that's a long way. They want a Palestinian state that is theocratically responsive to their understanding of Islam, in which people can live freely, but they will control it. If the Jews want to stay, that's fine. If they don't want to stay, that's fine, but they'll control it. That's their view. The non-Hamas Palestinians, the Palestinian Authority, are Palestinian Muslims and Palestinian Christians, that many of whom want a two-state solution with Israel. But they're not in power now. And if you've been following the press, you know that there's current fighting right now, armed fighting right now, in Gaza and in the West Bank, between Palestinian Authority and Hamas. They're fighting today. They're fighting today because Hamas's inability to recognize Israel, which they really couldn't recognize because it's in their fundamental court, what makes them different, uh, has the, triggered an, arm, uh, an economic embargo and the people aren't being paid. And this has caused armed struggle within the Palestinian state. You've got Israelis of various stripes. As long as the Israelis feel threatened, then that strengthens the hawkish elements in Israel and prevents the development of a more moderate strategy that could lead to some sort of negotiated settlement. There was a, the last chance really was under Clinton in 2000 with Barack and uh, Arafat, and ultimately it, it failed. That's a whole other, other story. The Hezbollah are Shia militants 
And they want first to control all of Lebanon. It's not a matter of should they disarm in Lebanon. They want to control Lebanon. And all the demography shows the Shia population going up. And then they would also like to take a chunk of Israel as well. Maybe the, they'll have to big shoot out with the Palestinians over which part of Israel to take. Nasrallah, the head of Hezbollah, said in March, before the war started, he has read all of the political and military biographies of the great Israeli leaders. He said, you have to know the enemy. He's a very smart guy, 46 years old, studied both in Qum and in Iran at a major Shia center in Iraq. He said, you know, people came to Israel for peace in the land of milk and honey. Once they realize there's no peace, there's no milk, and there's no honey, they'll leave, and we'll have all the land. That's it. So they're supported by Iran, brethren Shia, and they're also a tool of Iran. And they're funded and armed in part through Syria, which is Sunni secular, but weak, and has a leadership, some of whom are Shia, led by an ophthalmologist. He's an ophthalmologist. Now that's another notion. It's all, it's all about economic depravity and all that. Most of the leaders of these people, of these groups, are wealthy or affluent or educated people. You know, Bin Laden is a multimillionaire through the Bin Laden fortune. Zawahiri is from one of the most distinguished Egyptian families. He was a cardiologist. Um, so it's a complicated situation, and Bush is trying to struggle with all that. He's trying to figure out what to do in Iraq, which isn't going well. He's trying to resurrect the strength of NATO in Afghanistan, uh, where the Taliban has resurged. I haven't even had a chance to talk about that. Uh, he wants to try to cut some sort of improvement in the relationship with the Middle East. Condi Rice has just been in the Middle East now. She spent time with the Saudis and the Egyptians and the Jordanians, who are key allies in the region, even though we have problems with all of them, especially with the Saudis, to try to develop some new strategy how to negotiate some sort of roadmap peace agreement with uh, Israel and the Palestinians. Um, all of this is going on. Right now, you know, if there was, right now they all look like Webvan. They don't look good. They don't look good. But, you know, I've been wrong most of the time. So, you know, just maybe when I sell Webvan, it'll shoot up. So. so, a lot of the current thinking, a lot of the current issues are all about what I call militant Islam in its multiple dimensions in a region that's vast, and then also how to protect the United States against terrorist attacks because of that. That's a big subject of homeland security. I won't get into it. Now, finally, I'd like to talk about something else, uh, the most recent development of which happened yesterday afternoon. And that is our friends in Pyongyang and North Korea. Now, I had felt for a while, and I've had, you know, I have intermittent contacts with these folks, that after what's been going on in Iraq and the fact that it's gone sour and all these other festering problems, Bush had basically turned from the North Korean nuclear problem to, to Iran, the Iranian nuclear problem, and to these problems that we've been discussing. And I actually began to feel that he would leave to his successor the North Korean nuclear problem. Um, for, you know, there are only so many things you can do. And you know we're stretched in militarily. Our military actions haven't produced the desired results. Milit conventional military operations are not the same as winning a war. We see that every day in Iraq when you have insurgencies and all the rest. I think for the last six or eight months, even longer, there had been that shift. Bush has not chosen to do what critics of his administration have said, which is negotiate with them directly, try and cut some sort of deal to guarantee their security, and maybe that will stop their nuclear program. 
He said, no, I can't do, I can't do that. We'll do it through a six-party talks, the Chinese, the Japanese, the Russians, the South Koreans, the Americans, and the North Koreans. It hasn't led to anything. So now what's the latest development? There was a failed missile test by the North Koreans recently. Everyone on the West Coast should pay attention to this. I've done the calculations, trajectories. I know something about Soviet, uh, Russian, actually they are Russian missiles uh, originally. And then the so-called Nodong missile, and now the Tapodong. I, this goes back to my original field. I look at uh, flight paths and all that, and I could say we're not, we wouldn't be, if they could actually reach the U.S., we wouldn't be number one on the list, we'd be number three. Uh, the, the, in terms of shortest flight path, the shortest flight path from North Korea to the U.S. is over the pole, and that would hit Alaska. So Alaska's the top. If you have a vacation plan in Alaska, reconsider. <laughs> Uh, the second target is Seattle as the first major population center. This is assuming they're ready to commit suicide and be completely obliterated by a retaliatory attack, which is another matter. And then we would be the third target. If you're in L.A., you can wait till tomorrow. Just relax, relax, relax. It's a long flight, but it's hard. It's hard. Uh, when will they have such missiles? I don't know. Uh, they had one flight test that failed. Uh, we've tested major weapons that haven't worked and then used them. We've sometimes not tested major weapons and used them. The first atomic bomb used by the U.S. against Hiroshima was of a design that had never been tested. Nothing is uh, sacred in this business. Now, what's the latest thing that's happened? North Korea said very recently they want to test a nuclear weapon. For a long time, there's an agreement or disagreement. How many weapons do they have? Do they have weapons? We know they have two major activities to develop the weapons material themselves. They enrich the uranium from uh, mostly what's non-weapons grade, get the weapons grade material to build bombs. They have vast enrichment facilities. And they reprocess plutonium, which is the other key way, and they have reprocessing facilities. We don't know quite where everything is. We know where some of it is. So now the estimate is that they have two to five bombs, and there's a great band of uncertainty about that estimate. Now the North Koreans have just formally said they plan to test. They don't say when, they don't say where. Yesterday afternoon, the Assistant Secretary of State for, the, for East Asia, Christopher Hill, who would never make such a statement, as I'm about to tell you, without the approval of the Secretary of State, Condi Rice, and then the approval of the top leadership. It has to go through an interagency. That means Rumsfeld. It means the chairman of the Joint Chiefs. It means the head of the CIA. It means Cheney and probably Bush. Christopher Hill said yesterday in a press conference, said North Korea has a choice. It can have nuclear weapons or it can have a future. It cannot have both. It's their choice. This is what the faculty say to me. Not you can have, do what you want, or you can have a future. What do you choose? That was that was a classified remark. So my my get and Bush just again said that I uh, he made a generic statement yesterday, leaving some event. He said I am not going to leave my most vexing problems to my successor. Now, you and I may differ a lot about President Bush and how well he's done and what, but I think we may agree on one thing. When he tends to say something, he means it. And when he means it, he does it. You may or may not like it, but there is a kind of consistency of follow through there. So I'm now, in my pulse taking, beginning to think that if there's like a horse race of which threat is coming on, North Korea is coming up fast on the outside. <laughs> you got Iraq, you got Afghanistan, you got Al-Qaeda, 
You've got Iranian nuclear weapons. You've got the Middle East peace process. And here comes North Korea. Here comes North Korea. <laughs> so I would say, um, not able to predict anything, not much will happen until the midterm elections. One political caveat, which a lot of my friends tell me, I'm not sure if they're right, but I'll report it, that they believe if the Republicans suffer sweeping defeats next month in the midterms, both in the House and the Senate, that a lot of the views about military action will be put on the back burner. And that it could even lead to Rumsfeld's resignation. So a huge Republican defeat could lead to a moderation in foreign policy. I'm not sure there will be a huge defeat, although the latest stuff about Foley and the latest stuff about Woodward's book are very harmful to the Republicans. But I'm not even sure if there is such a severe defeat, how much it will affect the foreign policy. But I will tell you, for the last two years of the Bush administration, fasten your seatbelt. There's a lot of action ahead. At, at a minimum, there's a lot of tough negotiation ahead. There may be some crises ahead, and there may be worse things ahead. So um, I'm glad you're here this year because, you know, I'd like to meet you next year, but... <laughs> Corrections. Thank you very much. Hopefully an upbeat correction. Yes, sir. Yes, I was surprised to see that in your list of the top five, maybe it would be number six, in question of resurgent Russian nationalism. Yes. In particular regard to Georgia and... Uh, here. Right. Thank you. Yes, Russia. Russia and China are not asleep. And uh, so these are our two former adversaries. I would say there's a, quite a bit of attention being paid to what's going on in Russia and China. Let me just respond to the Russians since that's the one you raised. Uh, I think clearly the bloom is off the rose with Russia. I was involved personally in the Clinton years, mid-90s, later 90s, in uh, negotiating with the Russians at high levels and with the interagency team that Clinton had for Russia policy. I was at four summit meetings that Clinton had with Yeltsin. I sat across the table. And the American approach then was to help strengthen Russia economically and help democratize it. That was under Yeltsin, who had his own problems. Now we have Putin, very different man, former KGB man, has kind of what I call authoritarian inclinations. <laughs> Smart, doesn't drink, jogs, zero body fat. <laughs> tough guy, tough guy. And he has taken many measures to squelch the media, to jail uh, critics, to rig elections. He's been, quote, freely elected twice. He's supposed to step down. We'll see if he does step down at the end of his term. And now you have a, a, basically a crisis, as this gentleman said, with the neighboring state of Georgia. Georgia used to be part of the Soviet Union for 70 years. It barely has ever had any independent existence. I've been in Georgia, Tbilisi. First time I was there, there I heard gunshots as the plane landed. This is not the winner. And I was greeted, I was in the government at the time, and uh, a, a, an embassy car pulled up to the tarmac. So when I got off the plane, I didn't get into, go into the terminal, which wasn't that great anyway. I just got into the uh, car, and they said, well, you have good and bad news. The good news is there's now a three-star hotel in Tbilisi, but the bad news is five businessmen have been shot and killed there. So we're going to put you in a bed and breakfast, <laughs> where I stayed at 50 degrees. 
The other nice thing I remember at that flight I have to share with you is I took, uh, I flew from uh, Baku, Azerbaijan to Tbilisi, Georgia. Have any of you taken that flight? <laughs> you you know. So I flew Air Azeri, Air Azeri from, I said a few prayers in all languages to all religions and took that flight. I noticed when I buckled my seatbelt there was a sign that said uh, exit in English spelled correctly. So I felt a little bit, it was you know fairly encouraging. And then I noticed underneath there was another sign in English. It said emergency rope. <laughs> so what I did was I took a nap. I took a nap. It's out of my hand. So this is a Wild West place. There are gas and oil issues there. And now recently what's triggered this latest thing, and I'm sure you know much more about this than the rest of us, is that some Russian uh, individuals were arrested by the Georgian government and viewed as uh, espionage figures. And now Russia has basically cut off a lot of stuff with Georgia. Georgia must have good economic relations with uh, Russia to survive. So there is a sense of growing authoritarianism in Russia as viewed from Washington. This is troublesome. It may be even close to being alarming, but it's, you know, like when they say the urgent crowds out the important. This is important, but it's not yet urgent. So that's why it's number six or seven. There are similar, all kinds of issues with the Chinese, and there's always the unending uh, dispute about Taiwan. But we're so locked in economically now, so we're so interdependent economically, the view is that we're on a decent course. And also, the other thing that's moderating American concerns about Russia and China is they each have a Muslim problem. Right? The Russians have the Chechen problem, uh, and the Chinese have a problem which maybe perhaps many of you don't know about. But, you know, if, get off uh, 680 or 101 sometime and visit western China. Go to Xinjiang. Xinjiang is a Muslim province of China. Uh, they're not Han Chinese. Beijing is thousands of miles away. They basically seek autonomy. And there's been a mini insurrection there. There's been armed struggle there. And the PLA, the Chinese army, has put it down. Uh, so overall, I'd say these are very important, very serious issues, but they're below the crisis level. That's in case we solve the other five. Yes, sir. Um, what was the second question? Um, uh, speaking to the mic. The mic, the mic. Al-Sadr and his militia. Al-Sadr and his, that's in Iraq. Okay. So the two questions were about the Turkish-Kurdish problem. Something maybe not many of you obsess on overnight, but it's an important problem. And then one of the major insurgency, one of the major sectarian groups in Iraq. You know, some people, Council on Foreign Relations, some other people, now Senator Biden, I think to some degree, are endorsing the notion of a future Iraq, which is basically three states. The Sunni, the Shia, and in the north, the Kurds. The Kurds are Sunni, not Shia, but they're not Arab in Iraq. They're different. And they identify there's a Kurdish nation. There's Kurdish dress, Kurdish holidays, Kurdish food. Remember, must differentiate between the nation, which is a set of customs and historical perspectives of a people, and a state. Right? The U.S. has multiple nations in it. Right? Iraq has three major nations in it. 
So one idea was let the Kurds have the north where they have some oil, let the Sunnis have the south, where, let the Shias have the south where they have a lot of oil, and let the Sunnis kind of stew in the middle where there is no oil. Uh, one of the criticisms of that, of that approach is that the Kurds are a threat to Turkey because the Kurds are in four or five states in the region. They're in Syria, they're in Iran, they're in Iraq, they're in Turkey. There's been fighting between Kurdish Turks and the Turkish army. And the Turks have kind of produced veiled notions that a tripartite Iraq would lead to an, a Turkish military involvement in Iraq. Also, the Shias in Iran would be seen to have tremendous influence over the Shias in Iraq. And the theory would be that it would all unravel all against American interests. So this is why the U.S. up to now has not moved forward on, a, on basically dividing the state into three. On the issue of al-Assad, this gets into questions of, uh, I'll be brief on this, just Sunni and Shia uh, sectarian violence. This is a, he's a very strong figure. We've tried to deal with him in the past, had major military operations against him and failed. It appears that the Americans and the Iraqi government cannot control the major insurgencies. There's no evidence so far that these largely autonomous groups are able to be suppressed. So this, this adds so much more of a challenge to the problem because it's not even just Sunni versus Shia. There are conflicting groups within each as well as between. They're not united. So it's a mess. Let me, let me give you a bumper sticker version of Baghdad. I was at a dinner for just 10 people in the spring, around May. So it's just, this is only five-month-old news. And there was a very senior journalist there who was been stationed in Baghdad since before the war. He's been there since 2002. And he told me privately, he said, he, he just reports what he sees. He says, privately, I have to tell you, I supported the American involvement. He said, you can't believe what a tyrant Hussein was. The hope we had of what the Americans would bring. He's, you know, he works for a paper you all know and read. So he says, I have to put that on the table, that I was tremendously supportive of the U.S. going in and the Bush policy. Now I'll tell you what Baghdad is like today. He said, picture Los Angeles. Picture a city of five or six million people just in the city, spread out, huge areas, very diverse neighborhoods. It takes a long time to get from one part to another. Now picture Los Angeles in which any two people, no matter who they are, no matter what they're dressed, what they're wearing, two people staying on any street corner in Los Angeles for more than five minutes, anywhere, 24 hours a day, seven days a week, have a good chance of being shot. That is Baghdad today. So that's anarchy. Uh, you can call it civil war, you can call it insurgency, you can call it sectarian violence. It's anarchy. You can't send your kid out to school. School bus may not come back. Your garbage isn't picked up because the garbage man just got killed. You don't have electricity because they cut the wires. I heard an American general who was in Iraq for a year give a very detailed briefing and he said, you know what? The issues in Baghdad actually for the U.S. Army are not about the military issues, except the military issues have to be resolved. If you speak to the people, the citizens of Baghdad, that's all they want. They want safety for their kids. They want the garbage picked up. They want electricity. They want to be able to flush the toilet. And they don't have it. Three and a half years, they had it under Saddam Hussein. They stepped out of line, they got beheaded, but they had the toilet flushed. Now they get both. 
three and a half years. So the security of the people is essential and the multiple violent groups have been able to undercut the American and British and Iraqi government ability to provide the services. That was true starting in the summer of 03. As far as I know, it's true this morning. Yes, ma'am. I'm interested in knowing uh, about Condoleezza Rice. What is her power? What is her role? What is she trying to contribute? Yes. So the question is about Condoleezza Rice, her role, her power, her influence. Uh, truth is, I know Condoleezza Rice. I know her quite well. Um, actually, I invited her to be our commencement speaker at the Goldman School in 2000, the year of the presidential election. She was at the Hoover Institution at Stanford. She just sat down as provost. We had different views. I was actually quite active in the Gore campaign. She was very active in the Bush campaign, but, you know, this is academia. She gave a wonderful speech about uh, looking at uh, data properly and being skeptical. Anyway, it all sounded great. <laughs> it wasn't partisan. It was a wonderful speech. She got a standing ovation from our students. So I know her, I know her pretty well. Uh, first of all, Condoleezza Rice, you know, she's a somewhat unusual woman. Obviously, she's very accomplished. Uh, she comes from a, a somewhat, uh, a little bit unorthodox background in that here she's a woman, still she's only, I think, 51. She has no immediate family. You know, both her parents have died, and she was an only child. And I don't know if she has many close cousins or others. She really has almost no family. Um, she's a pianist, as you know, and uh, uh, she went to the uh, University of Denver, Notre Dame, and then back to Denver for a PhD. Her dissertation advisor was Madeleine Albright's father. <laughs> and then she went to Stanford. She rose up through the ranks. She was then on the NSC staff under Bush, the father, where she got to know Brent Scowcroft. And then she became Governor Bush's advisor during the 2000 campaign. She's made national security advisor for four years and our secretary of state. So that's the resume. Now on the details, what's the clout? I believe in the first four years, she had, she has one great advantage and one major disadvantage in the first four years. The great advantage was she became the interpreter of foreign policy for the president. She had his total trust. She could explain to him what he needed to know. Remember, Bush is also an odd case. He's the son of a man who was ambassador to China, ambassador to the United Nations, head of the CIA, congressman. He did all these things, and Bush was not interested in this stuff. He never traveled with him. Jeb Bush was with him all the time. Jeb Bush has traveled all over the world. I think you may recall in the 2000. Bush said he'd only been out of the country three times. Bush loves the Texas Rangers. He looks at the Texas Ranger box score every day, first thing in the paper. Yeah, I think even when they're not playing. <laughs> so Condi became, the, Condi became the interpreter for Bush. And she was the honest broker. She did not, I think, offer too much of her own advice because she was caught in basically, the, in the first term, it was the Cheney-Rumsfeld axis versus Powell. And her own inclinations were sided more and more with Cheney and Rumsfeld. She became more hawkish over time. She also became more religious. Uh, I don't know if it was before or after 9-11, but she is now an avowed evangelical Christian. And it is said, I have not seen this with my own eyes or heard it with my own ears, so to speak. I understand that when she meets often with the president in the Oval Office, they pray together. They, so this is serious. So they are very close, personal and professional colleagues. So that is amazing. I mean, you just don't, Henry Kissinger didn't pray with Nixon. <laughs> did, did a lot of things, but they didn't pray together. 
so, and the disadvantage was she was going up against these hyper heavyweights who she couldn't really compete against. Now we go to the second time, she's the Secretary of State. And clearly Iraq hasn't been working. So her main push is negotiated agreements. She's pushing for negotiations. That's what a State Department person does. You know, if you're in the military, you get ready to shoot. If you're in the State Department, you get ready to eat peanuts and negotiate. That's what you do. But she's running into these problems because every problem is so tough. So tough. She tried, as you see, to intervene in Lebanon and Israel. And, you know, things got stopped. I mean, you make your own judgment without, was that a success? Was it a failure? Clearly, in Israel, it's viewed as a failure. And in the, in the streets, in the Arab street, it was a big success for Hezbollah. Even though 70% of Hezbollah's capability was destroyed. But it'll be re, reconstituted by the Iranians. So, uh, so she has a lot of time. She's looking for a success, I would say. There's two years to go. She wants to get one thing. She wants to hit one home run, if I can use a metaphor. But look at these problems. I mean, is it likely there'll be a major peace agreement between Israel and the Palestinians in the next two years? But right now, the Palestinians are fighting each other. You think we'll actually get Iraq stabilized in the next two years? Do you think the Iranian nuclear program will be stopped peacefully in the next two years? Do you think Al-Qaeda will go out of business in the next two years? Do you think the Afghanistan situation will be resolved? You think the North, I mean, again, they all look like Webvan to me. <laughs> so that's, but there's no doubt she has a lot of clout. She is the president's ear. There are now publications saying Cheney's influence is waning because he's predicted things they haven't worked out. He's got a very low public standing. She has fairly high public saying, not where she had hoped to be. There was talk about her being on a ticket. There was talk that she would be the vice presidential candidate. She wouldn't be involved at all in the politics. Someone would be the Republican nominee in 08. McCain, Giuliani, Frist, uh, Brownback, uh, Romney. There are all kinds of candidates on the Republican side. And then she would be chosen, perhaps very attractively, uh, for the VP. You don't hear about that now. She's got to have a success in the next two years. And I can tell you, as someone who's in government, you're very time-driven. You know, this is not academia. This is not, well, if I don't finish it this year, I'll finish it next year. I've got 6,000 pages written, 6,000 more, I'll get it right. No, no, no. What's the two-page memo I can get done in 10 minutes that's going to get this problem resolved? So the clock is really ticking. And the last two years of administration are always tough. Clinton tried in the last two years to get a lot done. He felt the pressure. He wasn't that successful in certain things. He had a minor personal issue that... Uh, <laughs> this is great attention span, but for short periods. You know. Yes, sir. Most of the people in this room have uh, seen the United States war in Vietnam and the Soviet Union in Afghanistan and now our war in Iraq. Can you think of any examples in the last hundred years where a superpower went against an indigenous uh, you know, insurgency yes. and was, was victorious or in any sense was victorious, yes. and is that a model can ever work? Yeah, it's very hard. An example that is given is the British in Malaysia. They spent 10 years in Malaysia and they put down an insurrection in Malaysia. There are a few other examples around the world, but the British-Malaysian example, clearly it's an outlier. Clearly, in general, the indigenous population fighting for their very soul will stay forever. And the external power will stay only for a finite amount of time. Uh, and once they get tired, and once they run out of treasure, or once they run out of domestic support, they leave. So that's what makes it so, so tough. The U.S., I honestly believe the U.S. did not plan to be an occupier. You know, there's now full documentation that Tommy Franks talked about the beginning of the American military withdrawal in July 03. 
This was not phony stuff. They just misread it. They thought there'd be a conventional war, the U.S. would win quickly, the people would get together, there'd be a thousand problems, they'd talk about it, we get out. Wrong. Web van. Wrong. Get it wrong. Except in my case, not, you know, hurt me, but nobody else. In this case, it's hurting all of us. Yes, sir. Well, we've seen the Bush administration's strategy to deal with radical Islam. Is there a consensus, alternative strategy, if it is, if you laid out? Well, I think there's a growing view that we need to do a lot more that Bush has uh, clearly overemphasized the military card. The military card has to be played and has to be threatened to be played. We have to have a much more effective public diplomacy. We have to have much greater economic strategies in the Muslim world. <coughs> we have to have a much greater effort to try to make progress in the Israeli-Palestinian uh, issue. Much more aggressive diplomacy. So it's, it's largely in the non-military areas that the consensus is growing. We have to do a lot more. I personally believe I don't know how successful it would have been. I know, I think, with quite a lot of confidence. Had Kerry somehow carried Ohio and won in 04, with all of his problems and his own inconsistencies and all of that, there would have been major diplomatic and economic initiatives. They were on the plate. They were being planned by the staff. They were really ready to go. He didn't win. Bush has largely rejected them. He said, this is a fight to the death. This is the good guys against the bad guys. It's really simple. They're either going to kill us or we're going to kill them, and we're going to kill them first. It's really that simple. You don't have to worry about all this other, no conceptual frameworks and complex, it's simple. It's simple. This is high noon. It's high noon. It's real simple. And he won twice, as Republicans sailed, you know. Elections have consequences, right? That's how democracy works. Yes, sir? Uh, apropos of that, recently, uh, uh, James Baker III got back from, uh, I think, uh, Iraq. He was there for several days. Yes. He gave an interview where he indicated that after the elections that he was going to try and form a bipartisan, whatever that means, uh, group of Democrats and Republicans right. to see if they could come up with a new strategy right. for Iraq and, I guess, Afghanistan and other parts of the Middle East. Does this really signal that Bush is, or this administration has really given up on their current policy, that they know that it won't work. Okay, so the, the point was that James Baker III has been to the region and he's talked about after the midterm elections, there'll be a new initiative. I personally believe that this will in fact happen. Uh, it will have, frankly, as much clout as the depth of the Republican defeat. Uh, if the Republicans suffer a lot in the, in the elections, Baker will have even more clout. You may have seen that in the Woodward book that he claims that Andy Card twice urged the president to remove Rumsfeld and have James Baker as Secretary of Defense. But it, it indicates the fact the Bush people are not stupid. They've held on to certain policies for different reasons. They know they're going to have to modify and diversify their portfolio. There will be diplomatic initiatives. There will be diplomatic initiatives on the Israeli peace process with Iraq and with Afghanistan. I have no doubt of that. How effective they'll be, I don't know. I won't say that means they've given up. And Cheney and Rumsfeld certainly haven't given up, but they will, they will say, we'll add that to the current mix. And exactly how that gets sorted out, that gets into bloody interagency struggles. And it will also depend to some degree on just how much influence Cheney still has in the final two years. Cheney's not a big fan of a lot of this stuff. He doesn't, he doesn't, just doesn't believe it. He thinks if you're the bad guys, you don't talk to them, you don't give them money, you take care of them. That's it. But he may, his influence may be waning. Yes, ma'am. It should be the end. Yeah. 
what are the chances of an October surprise? This is more by Bush, because you see that Denny Hastert just said the other day that the congressman scandal from Florida was the Democratic October surprise. <laughs> that they engineered it so that the Democrats could win. You know, October surprise by definition are a surprise, so I don't want to be surprised. <laughs> but, uh, I, you know, I, of course, I personally have no knowledge of any Republican plan for, for a surprise. Um, I can say this, though, that if at any time, not only between now and the elections, but any time in the next two years, there is any additional attack on this country, and who knows whether that's now infeasible or whether it'll happen tomorrow afternoon, this will largely help the Bush position. They'll say, you know, you may not like me, you may not think much of me, but I got it right. I got it right. I'm here to protect you. That's my job. I'm here. To, I'm doing everything I can to protect you. And if it means killing a lot of people, that's what I'm going to do. And as long as you know, there have been no attacks in five years. Thank goodness. So the credibility of that statement is waning among the American public. If those ten planes that were going to be planned to be blown up in Britain just a few weeks ago, can you imagine opening up the newspaper? Ten airliners shot out of the sky by British, Pakistani origin uh, militant Muslims. You'd have new draconian measures all over the place. This conversation probably wouldn't have been held. It would all be about our new security measures. So I think I'm more concerned about that kind of surprise, which I hope won't happen, than some sort of political surprise. But, you know, Rove reads the polls. They know where they stand. They know they're in trouble. And, I, you know, governments do have surprises. I think I've been pulled off. Uh, let, let, me just, let me just mention to you...